Well, we know that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he spent a significant time in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know what he was praying and what he was experiencing during that time of prayer. We know that he prayed, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. We know that he was sorrowful, that he experienced agony and anguish during that time of prayer. We know that he asked some of his disciples to pray with him, and yet they couldn't even stay awake while Jesus was suffering and calling out to his Father, knowing what was coming in just a short while. We know those things because Matthew and Mark and Luke all tell us about that experience of Jesus in Gethsemane on that night. But we are less familiar with the prayer that John records from that night. John often gives us a a slightly different perspective on the same stories and the same events. And John records what is the longest prayer that we have recorded from Jesus anywhere in the Bible. And in it, we get an even greater glimpse into the heart and mind of Jesus as he was approaching the cross. What did he know about who he was and what was about to happen? What did he care most about? What was uppermost in his mind and heart as he approached those final hours of his life and ministry here on the earth? What did he ask for? What was he focused on? All these things and more we see in, again, what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer. Now, we're not going to look at the whole prayer this morning. I'm going to focus on verses 1 to 19. And in those verses, Jesus is primarily praying for himself and for his disciples at the time. Beginning in verse 20, which we'll hopefully look at next week, Jesus prays for all those who will believe after his disciples, which of course includes all those who believed for the last 2,000 years, including you and I. But this morning we're going to focus on his prayer for himself in verses 1 through 5, and his prayer for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. John tells us there in verse 1 that when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, So he's been speaking with his disciples, he's been teaching them, preparing them for his departure. And the coming of the Spirit, telling them what that would be like, giving them reasons to be encouraged and hopeful, even though they are at the same time sorrowful and and not looking forward to Jesus' departure. But now, he transitions from teaching his disciples to pray for himself and his disciples. And the first thing he says in his prayer is, Father, the hour has come. And this is something that, a theme that runs throughout the Gospel of John early on when Jesus was at the wedding in Cana. Remember, and the, the family at the wedding had run out of wine, and Mary tried to get Jesus to fix that problem for them, which of course he did, right, by turning water into wine. Jesus says at that point, my hour has not yet come. And sort of throughout the Gospel of John, we have this theme of Jesus' hour. And Jesus says now in chapter 17 that the hour has come, meaning the time of his death is here. And he knows it. He knows what is coming. None of it is going to catch him by surprise. And he has made it to this very 
moment for which he came. This is the whole reason why Jesus came, right? It was so that he could lay down his life. So what is he going to ask as he approaches this climactic moment of his life? Well, the first thing he says in verse 1, the first thing he asks for is this. He says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. What does that mean? What does it mean to glorify someone in the first place? Right, there's a couple ways you could use that word glorify. Right? You could say to glorify someone is to add glory to them they don't have. Right? To make them appear more glorious than they currently are. Or to give them more glory than they currently have. Clearly that's not what Jesus is asking for. He's not saying, I don't have enough glory, I need more glory. The other way you can use the word glorify is to call attention to the glory that somebody already has. Right? This is how we glorify God. When we say we, we're trying to do what we do to the glory of God, we come to church to glorify God, we're not trying to give God some glory He doesn't have, like He's, you know, diminished over the week like a, like a battery losing its charge, and we come on Sunday to charge Him back up by glorifying Him. That's not what we mean. What we mean is, we want to call attention to, we want to, we want to sing about and celebrate and talk about how great and glorious God already is. So more people can see it and recognize His glory. So when Jesus says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, what He's saying is, Father, as I go to the cross, I want you to show the world who I really am. Show them my glory. Show them my greatness, my beauty. Right? Show them my wisdom, my love, my humility. Let them see in my death who I really am. And that's part of what the cross does for us. Jesus' death highlights for us everything that is wonderful and glorious about Jesus. His humility, that He'd be willing to do this for us. His love, right, that He cares for us enough that He would not only live for us, but that He would die for us, that He would lay down His life for us. Everything that's glorious and great about Jesus is put on display in the cross, and as that happens, the other part of Jesus' prayer is answered as well, that the Son may glorify the Father. Because as we see what Jesus is doing and enduring on the cross, we know that He is doing that in obedience to the Father and in fulfillment of the Father's plan. The Father is the one who sent the Son. Jesus has said that over and over and over in the Gospel of John. I can do nothing of my own, but only what I see the Father doing. I came to do what the Father who sent me gave me to do. Those are the works that I'm doing. Those are the words that I'm speaking. So as we're drawn to Jesus on the cross, as we see His glory, as He's lifted up, we also see the glory of the Father who sent Jesus to accomplish this perfect salvation. So if we see the cross for what it is, we see it not primarily as a tragedy, 
but as a fulfillment, as a revelation of the glory of Jesus and the glory of the Father. We see God's love on fullest display as the Father offers up His Son and His Son offers up His life for us. That's what Jesus is praying would happen and that of course is what happens. And notice what Jesus says uh, in verse 2 and 3. He talks about those uh, that the Father has given to Him. He he says, um, you have given Him authority, talking about the Son, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. We're going to come back to who those people are that the Father has given to the Son. We'll come back to that in just a moment. You've given them to Him, right, to me, to give eternal life. And in verse 3 He says, this is eternal life. How would you define eternal life? Here's how Jesus defines it. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is not just living forever, having life eternally. That is part of it, of course. But that's not all that it is. In fact, that's not even the most significant part of what it is. Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing Christ. So eternal life is like this. It's it's not so much someone saying to you, congratulations, you're never going to die, you get to live forever. That might be great for a little while, but what happens if everybody you love and everybody you care about, they they don't get to be there with you forever. Does that sound great still? Not really. All right? But Jesus says, not only are you going to live forever, you're going to live forever in fellowship with God. The one who is the author of life, who gives you life. It's more like somebody saying, the person in your life who brings you the most Joy, The person that you say, I could spend every minute of every day with that person. Every time we're together, we have a great time. We never run out of things to say. I I walk away more refreshed from being with them. It's like being with that kind of person forever. But then, you know, ramp that up a million times because we're talking about God who gives life and joy and peace. The one who can satisfy our souls. The one who the Bible says in His presence is fullness of joy. Jesus says eternal life is knowing you. Being in fellowship with you. And that's what Jesus came to purchase for us on the cross. So if you're not a Christian, Jesus didn't come and die only so that you could have your sins taken away and not feel guilty anymore. And that's a, that's a great thing. That's a significant thing. But here's why he did that. Why do you need your sins forgiven? Not only so you don't have to be punished for them and suffer for them in hell, as wonderful as not having to experience that is. But more than that, he took away your sin. He took the punishment for your sin so that you could be restored to fellowship with God. So that you could experience life The way God created it to be experienced. Knowing Him. Walking with Him. It's it's in a sense like being invited back to the Garden of Eden. To walk with God 
in paradise like Adam and Eve did. That's what Jesus is purchasing for us on the cross. And notice what Jesus knows about not only what's coming, but what lies behind him. Verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus is not about to be turned into a God because of what he's going to do on the cross. He's not about to be elevated from manhood to godhood because of what a great person he is. He knows that before he took on flesh and became a man and was born of the virgin, he was the eternal son of God. That he was in heaven with his father in undiminished glory for all of eternity past, so to speak, whatever that even means, right? He had always been with the Father. He had shared with Him fully and perfectly in that glory that He says in in Scripture that He shares with no one else. Only the Father and the Son and the Spirit share that glory amongst themselves. Jesus partook of that glory with the Father before He humbled Himself and was born as a man and took on the form of a servant. He knows that's where he came from. He knows who he is, that he's God in the flesh, and he knows that he is about to return to the Father. This is part of why Jesus said to his disciples, look, if you knew where I was going, you would be rejoicing for me. Right? This has not exactly been, you know, a vacation down here. This is not something that, you know, I signed up for because I thought it would be Fun. I did this. I sacrificed for you. I endured for you because I love you. But now I'm going back to the Father. And I can't wait. And not only that, but one day I'm going to get to take you there with me. And I'm really excited about that too. So he knows where he's come from. He knows where he's going. And then he begins in verse 6 to pray for his disciples. Because he does love them. He does care about them. He says in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Uh, When he says, I've manifested your name to them, it's not just like he told them, here's what God's name is. God's name represents his character. It's the same kind of thing Jesus said when he said to Philip, who said, you know, he said, Jesus, if you'll just show us the Father, we'll be satisfied. That'll be enough. And Jesus said, In a sense, are you kidding me, Philip? Have you been with me so long and you still don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. That's what he's saying here. I have shown you to my disciples. I have revealed them to you. And everything I've done and everything I've said, I've been displaying to them who you are. And he says about his disciples that they are those whom God gave him out of the world. The Father gave him out of the world. What does he mean by that? Multiple times. In verse 2 we saw this. In verse 6 we see this. We get again in verse 24. Jesus talks about this group of people that the Father has given to him. Who are these people? It's not just his 12 disciples. It also includes all who will follow him 
throughout all time, right? Because verse 24, where he's talking about those who believe after the disciples, he says about them, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. So he's talking about all those who have or will believe in him. And he says they've been given to him by the Father. And he talked about this back in chapter 6 too. This is not, this is not a new idea. This group of people who the Father gives him. He says in, verse, uh, in chapter 6 verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, People are going to be drawn to Jesus. They are going to believe in Jesus. And Jesus is going to keep them and protect them and never cast them out and not lose any of them and raise them up on the last day. And who are these people? They are people that God has gifted to His Son. That He has chosen, that He has gathered, that He has made His people and entrusted to His Son. And he says, Jesus says in verse 6, that they've been given to him out of the world. In other words, these are people who were a part of the world. They were part of that uh, mass of people who are living in rebellion against God. But God took them out of the world and gave them to Jesus. He talks about this in verse 9 as well. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. So Jesus says, I'm not even praying for the whole world right now. I'm focusing on these you have entrusted to me. These who are my disciples. These whom you have given to me. In verse 14 he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. They used to be of the world, but you've taken them out of the world in that sense, right? Out of that group of people living in rebellion against God or ignorance of God or ignoring God at least and you've given them to me and now they belong to me and they believe you and I'm I've been entrusted with them and they they now know who you are who I am verse 8 he says I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and they have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. So I I told them what you wanted me to tell them. They have received what you gave me to give to them and they believe that I am the one that you sent. They believe that I'm the Messiah. They believe that I'm the Savior. And I'm, I'm praying for them. Why is he praying for them? He's the one who's about to die. Right? He's the one who's about to go to the cross. What is he concerned about for them? Why? He spends many more verses praying for them than he did for himself. What is he praying about for them and why? Well, look at verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, which, of course, at this moment he is, but he's talking about what's 
just about to happen. I mean, after it happens, it's too late for him to pray this where anybody can hear it, right? So he's talking about what's about to happen. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So he's praying for them because he's leaving and they're staying. He's going back to the Father, but they are going to be remaining here in the world. And so Jesus is concerned about them in the sense that he cares about them. He's, he's He's not anxious. He's not worried. I don't mean that when I I use the word concerned, but he does love them and he wants them to be cared for and guarded. And so he says in verse 12, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So the whole time that I was with them, I was protecting them, I was guarding them, I was keeping them. One has been lost, but that was necessary. The scripture had to be fulfilled about Judas, right? But Jesus even tells us about Peter. He he says, Peter, uh, Satan demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus was intervening and interceding for his disciples even while he was here on the earth. But now he is about to depart. He is going to leave them here. And so he wants the Father to keep them and guard them. He says, verse 13, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they might have, they, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Father, I've been keeping them, but now I'm leaving. So I'm handing them back over to you, as it were, entrusting them once again to you, asking that you protect them from their enemy, from the evil one, while they remain in the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, I'm asking you to protect them while they remain in the world. Why not ask for them to get out of the world? I mean, Peter, that's what he wanted, right? He's like, Jesus, I'm coming with you. You keep saying, where I go, you can't come. How come? I'll die if that's what it takes to go with you. I'm coming with you. Jesus said, no, you can't now. You will later, but you can't now. Why not? Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then here we go, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world because they've got a job to do here in the world. I'm about to finish my job. I've done everything that the Father has given me to do, Jesus has said. He's about to lay down his life. His part of the plan is about to be fulfilled. But in a sense, his disciples' work is just about to begin. 
It's after His death and resurrection and then the sending of the Spirit that they are empowered, as Acts 1.8 says, to bear witness about Jesus, to be His witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And He's leaving them in the world, sending them into the world, just as He was sent. But He wants the Father to protect them, to keep them, and to sanctify them. Verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What does that word sanctify mean? That's, man, if there was ever a churchy kind of word that we hear but don't always know what it means, man, that, that's it, right? Sanctify. Sanctify just means to set something apart for God. To set it apart as holy. And so he's saying, God, set, set them apart for yourself, for me. Set them apart as holy. Set them apart. Sanctify them in the truth. Right? It is God's truth, God's word that we believe, that we build our lives on, that sets us apart from the rest of the world. And it's not that we're better than other people, right? Or or something like that. It's not we're not we're not set apart like the Pharisees saw themselves as set apart. We're we're the really holy ones. We're the ones who you know, have to keep everybody else in line. That's not the vision of holiness that Jesus has for his people here. The, the ones who are sanctified, the ones who are set apart, are simply the, word, the ones who hear God's words and say, that's the truth. That's what I believe. That's what I'm building my life on. And Jesus says that he sanctifies himself or consecrates himself. Same thing. In verse 19, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. It is because Jesus sets himself apart, sanctifies himself, consecrates himself, offering himself up as an offering to God, a sacrifice to God by which our sins are atoned for and our salvation is accomplished. It is by doing that that we are set apart. That we are sanctified. It's, it's the blood of Christ that covers us, that makes us holy. We're not holy. Right? Jesus makes us holy. It's in Christ that we are holy. And then having been made holy in Christ, that we are sent out in the name of Christ into the world to bear witness to Christ so that even more people can come to know and trust Christ and experience His Love and salvation and fellowship. These are the things that were on Jesus' mind as he went to the cross. He wanted the world to see who he really is so they would be drawn to him, so that we would recognize him as a, not just a Savior, the Savior, the Son of God himself laying down his life. He prayed for his disciples because he loved them, because he knew that. Living in the world and following Jesus is not an easy thing to do. He knew that they had an enemy who would be seeking to destroy them. So he asked the Father to protect them, to keep them, to guard them. And he knew not only where he came from and where he was going, but what he was doing. He was setting apart himself. So that as he laid down his life, we too would be set apart as those who are holy in him. Let's pray.